Hello everyone, my name is Dan Tamminga and you are listening to Masters of Science, a podcast in which I talk to master students about their study program and their master thesis. We discuss the content of their thesis, but also their personal views and experiences in doing this research. Today I will be speaking to Jeff Allen, master student, history and philosophy of science. Hey Jeff, nice to have you here. Welcome. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Jeff Allen. I'm a recent graduate of the History and Philosophy of Science Master, that's HPS, and I'm also a podcaster, so I've got my own philosophy science podcast called Extrapolator, which I've been making for a year and a half. Could you tell me something about your master program and then especially the research projects in your master program? Well, first, the, the program itself, History and Philosophy of Science, I feel like nobody's really heard of it unless you're in this tiny niche, but it's a, it's a combination of history of science and philosophy of science. So we look at the history of famous scientists and also knowledge-making projects, how the modern disciplines like physics and chemistry and biology, how these evolved, how they became scientific empirical fields from being traditionally more natural, it was natural philosophy done by natural philosophers, you know, a couple of hundred years ago on the way back to, to ancient Greece. So we look at the history of these fields and we look at, we kind of ask philosophical questions about modern scientific practices, philosophy of quantum mechanics, philosophy of neuroscience, and more general questions about evidence, explanation, theory and, ex and experiment, all these kinds of things. Uh, so it's very broad, it's very varied, but I loved the variety in the course. Uh, so you'll do, it's a two-year program, and the first year is just mainly classes. So you get kind of exposed to loads of different topics, loads of different subjects. It's great for, you know, seeing what things excite you the most. And then in the second year, you do a, a, a full year research project. I wrote a 40,000 word master thesis on philosophy of perception, but you have you've loads of different choices. You can pick, you know, anything really in the history of science and the philosophy of science, looking more closely at, at a, a certain field like neuroscience or AI or quantum mechanics or uh, anything about the history of biology, the history of evolution, so much choice. Uh, and yeah, and you'll work on that, that research project for about a year. That's quite some time to, to actually dive into something. I can imagine that this research is often also related to the bachelor education of a student. Is that often the case? Well, they recommend that you've studied you know, some topic in history or some topic in philosophy that gives you a foothold, but it's not necessary. So I have, I have classmates who came from fashion, they came from, I did law actually, I did law with philosophy, so I probably had a bit less philosophy experience than some other people in, in, my, in my class. And if that is the case, they'll just give you some books to read, you'll do a, a quick, I think it's a pre-master exam to make sure that you're up to speed with the main things. So you don't need to ha know a lot about these things coming in, but it certainly helps if you have history or philosophy experience. Yeah, I can imagine it can also help to have some goals, some, an area of interest, an area of, well, specialization is not yet there maybe, but I mean, as you said, it's so broad, mm -hmm. how to orient yourself. Well, it's funny, me, I kind of, I like not specializing. I, I see myself as a generalist. So it's kind of an, ex an excuse for not being that detail oriented or focused in narrow domains. I kind of wanted to cast this really wide net across loads of different subjects, uh, like looking at common questions about the mind, which is my topic in perception, but they link into other topics about metaphysics and how we perceive time, how we perceive space, 
how we perceive meaning. So really, you can cast an incredibly wide net. And yeah, so the the freedom is there to specialize, like you say, or to do what I do and just be a generalist and get away with not choosing something something too specific. Oh, yeah, I see. And as a generalist, do you feel like you get the chance to get to the bottom of things? Uh, as in, I can imagine that this might be like the something. I mean, if you specialize, there's more room for, for going real depth into something. As a generalist, you might mm, stay at the top of things a bit more at the service. Is that true? Yeah, I suppose the goal might be kind of different. I realized this close to the start of my research project. I was aiming at more of a kind of a synthesis, which is the goal of taking an overview, taking a wide view and trying to, you know, synthesize, recombine things that have been said in a new way. So it's less about concrete answers to specific questions. It's more about a new overview of of a certain way of seeing things. So this is all quite abstract, but this is it's just one strategy that you can do. You can kind of you can take as a philosopher to take this broad synthesis view of yeah reframing a certain area. Wow. Okay. Okay. We're already way in there. Let's <laughs> let's take a few steps back. But I should uh, mention one more thing. Sorry, because uh, I've been talking lots about the history and the philosophy side, which is the kind of humanities route into this course, yeah. history and philosophy of science. But there are plenty in my class who did physics at undergrad. They did, or they did like a, a hard science subject. Mm -hmm. So we do have quite a mixture of people who came from philosophy like me and wanted to know more about the empirical side and people who came from empirical sciences like physics who had never done philosophy, but they had these bigger questions about what was it all about? What do the equations mean? What are they pointing at? What are we describing? How are we describing it? And they kind of converted from the, the physics into the philosophy of physics. So there are really so many different paths into this history and philosophy of science. I see. Okay. Yeah. Well, so many, right, as you describe it, now I see two paths, the, like, or two general paths, ones from physicists who are, like, motivated to study the underlying questions, mm -hmm. like, I guess, metaphysical questions, um, and, and maybe people who already have a background in philosophy who want to apply it a bit more on metaphysics, or... That, that is a fair assessment. They're, they're the two main routes for sure. Yeah. And then there are the weird ones like my friend who came from fashion and I came from law, I suppose, which was a slightly less mainstream route. But no, that's, that's a good summary. That p Philosophers who want to get empirical and scientists who want to get philosophical. They're the, the two main routes. <laughs> yeah, I see. Okay. And well, let's, let's go back to, to the, the year of research that you do. This is... One year of diving into a subject and, well, doing your own research project in it. How did you approach this? How did you find your subject? So the first year, as I say, was great for inspiration. I really, I used it as a kind of, to test the waters in loads of different ways. So I took a really broad range of classes on the philosophy of AI, wrote essays about like history of evolution, loads of seemingly different things. But every time a topic jumped out at me as being interesting, I would just make a note. So this is my advice really to anybody who's starting their master's or in the middle of their first year, who's thinking about their thesis starting in the near future, open a note in your phone, call it something like thesis ideas. And every time something that something just catches your attention, your interest, put it in the note. And then when it comes to time to start the, the project and to choose a topic, you already have a list of things that were exciting at the time. And I would just, I looked at that list, I saw some common themes one very strong theme was questions about the mind, 
questions about consciousness, perception, subjectivity. These are always questions that kept coming, kept coming back. Even though they popped up in AI, they popped up in philosophy of quantum mechanics, I was wondering about our experience of these things, our perception of these, th these things. So that was the way that I found a core theme. Uh, but I do, my advice is also not to try to cover too much. I think I fell into the trap of wanting to cover almost everything that I cared about, which is impossible. So I had this really long list, which was great, but it can be negative if you try to cover too much of it. So my updated advice from experience is make the list and then pick one thing on the list to write a thesis about. Yeah, I see. And in that process of selection, did you lose your, I mean, you said you're a generalist. Could you still be a generalist picking that one subject? I think that was the problem that I faced the whole way through the year. I think as an as an academic and as, as a master student, eventually, there comes a time when you have to be a specialist in something. So I think I was still retreating a bit too far into the generalist zone. And it also depends on who you're working with and what topic you're covering. So as it happens, my supervisor was a specialist and not a generalist, which is something that I didn't know in advance. But it was great for me because he was always pushing me in the direction of being narrow, being focused. We had this kind of cat and mouse game throughout the year. He would say, cover less surface area, you know, be more focused. So he was kind of channeling me to just to, to pick a topic and to cut things out, which I did. And then I would find something else interesting and I put it back in again. So it was this kind of funny cat and mouse thing we had going through it the whole year. And it was very, it was very good for me that I had a specialist supervisor who was kind of forcing me to think more specifically about a certain topic. So yeah, I think that's, it's a it's a it's a difficult balance and it's one that I think many students will face and many professors still face, you know, how specialized to get. Because I, I really I defend the generalist approach. I think keeping an eye on the big picture, where everything's located, how it all fits together, I think that's very important. But you kind of have to do both and, and not not let the detail slip away. I see. Yeah. Uh it makes sense to I guess also keep an eye on uh, yeah, the, the the big goal, the what you're aiming at, what is the relevance mm -hmm. okay but uh, so your supervisor gave you uh well gave you direction in a way and how did you find him how how does that work so in history and philosophy of science most of the projects come from the students own ideas i know in some especially in the sciences you kind of as a master student you join a team of existing researchers and you're kind of given tasks which seems crazy to me because you know w with our projects you thought about it for a year and then you had an idea and then you were the one to find someone to work with this on, on this idea. So you know, the odd time a professor will advertise for a student to help them with a certain topic that they, they're interested in kind of researching further. But most of the time, it's the student's idea and they just have to go out into the world and find a supervisor who will fit with that kind of domain. So it was word of mouth. I just asked around some teachers, friends, got a recommendation of a great professor from philosophy who was in this area of philosophy of perception, cognitive science. So I just sent him an email and I never met him before, but we quickly arranged to work together and it kind of fell into to a nice pattern. Oh, wow. He, wait, he, it was a professor from, from the university here? Yes, it was, yeah. And ah. there's a rule actually that your first supervisor should be from Utrecht yeah. and your second can be from somewhere else. I see. Oh, but by chance you, you never met him? So we actually didn't meet for the first nine months. I mean, ah. we, we, we met online. Ah. It was the, the times we were in. But uh, right. it worked very well. I mean, uh, we met on Microsoft Teams. We had this kind of 
regular slot every two weeks on a Wednesday was how we kind of approached it. Sometimes it was a three week gap if I was busy with podcasting and other life things. <laughs> I'd request a longer gap. But yeah. we had this regular meeting time, online meeting, and one on one works really well, I think, for online. And it was funny when we, we finally met after nine months, like we knew each other already at that point before we ever met. Um, and it, it, it was maybe strange to pick someone who was a stranger as my supervisor, but that might be quite common because you have a certain topic and you've met a couple of teachers in your first year, but if none of them fit what you want to do, you have to go off the map. And you take a recommendation from friends and from teachers that you trust. So worked out great. Yeah. Are, are there so many professors in philosophy that outside that you don't meet in the teaching program, but that are just there? Or is this one of the rare ones out? I think it's quite broad. I mean, between all the, I think it's the philosophy and religion department, if I'm not mistaken. And that would cover a lot of different, you know, philosophical and religious programs and, and subjects. And then of course, because I was in history and philosophy of science, I would often be in classes with AI students or, you know, physics students mm. so our net was even wider so there were so many professors that we could potentially have met that we wouldn't have met them all by the end of first year i see oh yeah this also has to do probably with the the broadness of of the program mm -hmm. i can imagine okay and and so you met once in in two weeks generally and for how long did you then meet what was the, did your talks have a structure what did you discuss it was about an hour each time. Like it wasn't strict by any means. It took as long as it took, but it it rarely took less than half an hour and rarely took more than an hour. It just kind of wrapped up naturally. And we'd often just kind of catch up about what I'd just been reading. So, well, the, the first 10 weeks was kind of the planning phase. So this is the normal way to approach a project like this. You spend the first quarter of your time making a proposal, planning how you're gonna, what topics you're gonna cover, what you're gonna read. And I really did lots of detailed research, like skimming a lot of different papers, making a list of what I would read and the order I'd read it in. So I had everything divided into the, the sub questions I hoped to answer in this in this project. And then for the rest from Christmas until the summer, it was just taking the, the text off one by one. Like I had a spreadsheet. I was very systematic about the whole thing. And I worked my way through the spreadsheet slowly during the year. So we'd myself, my supervisor, we just talk about what I'd just been reading and, you know, what kind of updates I'd be making. I always summarize as I went along. I think that's a that's a great piece of advice as well is when you're finished reading a text when it's fresh in your mind, write a summary. So that way, the things that came to your mind when you're reading it, capture those because they're going to slip away otherwise. So I would be reading and writing summaries and the writing kind of brings things out that, you know, issues that have been at the back of your mind. So we just kind of, we just chat and discuss about the stuff I've been reading. And it was quite nice. I mean, it was very satisfying to have someone who was so you know, focused and intelligent and, you know, interested. So like it, it was a very gratifying experience, I think. And lots of students have this experience of having a supervisor who cares about your subject, understands your subject really well, knows exactly what you're trying to say when you're trying to say something quite difficult. So it was kind of this, sometimes it was this amazing one-on-one -on -one experience where you'd really get quite deep into a certain issue that you feel like almost nobody else could, could, could discuss with you because it was so specialized something that you've been thinking about and that he happened to also have thought about so yeah those moments were, were very nice yeah can imagine yeah yeah is those are yeah in, in a way unique unique conversations you have then and you also mentioned uh, a spreadsheet uh, what did you use it for 
So I was keeping track of everything I was planning to read and had read. So I made this during the proposal phase at the start of the year, made this kind of 60 row spreadsheet of all the texts that I thought could be worth reading. And I wrote the important details like author, year, where the where the text came from, things I could find, information I could find easily afterwards. And then I importantly, I color coded the relevance of every text. So I had this traffic light system of red, orange, green. And I went as I went along, I'd update this relevant system. So green would be very relevant, orange would be slightly relevant. And then it, if I put mark something as red, it'd be irrelevant. So I could take it off the list. And it's made sure that I was spending my time in the right way. Kind of the more green text you have, the better. And maybe you can pluck some things out of the orange text, but you shouldn't be spending that much time on them. And then if I opened a text and it somehow just didn't really fit with what I was trying to, questions I was answer, asking, I would just mark it as relevant and toss it aside. So this is, again, part of my big picture thinking. I was always keeping track of where I was in the project and, you know, how what I was doing at that moment was relevant to a certain section and then to the overall, you know, goal itself. Right. Wow. Yeah, it's... It's all strategy of doing literature research, I guess, such a spreadsheet. Did you think of it yourself or was it handed to you guys as a, as a way of doing literature research? Because that's something also you need to learn, I think. Mm -hmm. No, no, it wasn't handed at all. And I used to have this rant at the start of my thesis year because we used to do these presentations for each other. This is all self-motivated. Self the students, we'd meet up and explain our thesis ideas to each other, which was a great exercise. And I think we got a lot out of that exercise. And at, at one of the first meetings, I showed them this spreadsheet, which was still in like an early form. And then I went in this rant about how we're never taught these things. You're, you're taught the content of your academic subject, whether it's philosophy or geology or whatever you're studying, you're taught about rocks, but you're not taught about how to study learning about rocks. So I like to get meta on these practices and methods themselves, like how you can keep track of this information how you can, you know, store all of the things you read and the insights, you know, so much information passes through you as a, I don't know, analytical system. Uh -huh. You have to have a place to put all of these ideas, boxes to put things in so you can know to get them later on. So yeah, a couple of us really got quite focused on, you know, perfecting our procedures and methods. I think it, it helps a lot. Yeah, I think it's, it's essential, yeah. Uh, that's cool that you... Well, you were so conscious about it. Well, when I was doing my research, I, I, I stopped at some point. I, I was stuck, and then I was stuck for a long time, and it was mm -hmm. kind of hard to 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 get that overview. It sounds like you you had the opportunity to meet up with people and and talk about how you actually do this literature research, how you handle uh, all this information, how you organize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing about being a philosopher and being a philosopher of science. I mean, a lot of our job is looking at procedures and methods of scientists. So it makes you self-aware and gives this meta-awareness of what you're doing, how we study knowledge making. So we ourselves are engaged in knowledge making and we're thinking about how we are engaged in knowledge making. So we're in this kind of recursive loop <laughs> the whole time of thinking yeah. about our thinking. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think it's a good moment to to get to your thesis subject because I'm curious, what what was your thesis about? So broadly, it was about philosophy of perception, and I'll introduce you to this, the subject itself because if you've never heard of the philosophy of perception, you might be wondering, you know, what the hell is this about? 
So I like to use the example of Tiger Woods, the golfer, to introduce people to questions about perception. So I'll tell you a story about the Masters tournament in 2019. So Tiger Woods, of course, is a world famous golfer. And in 2019, he won the Masters tournament. So he won this competition. He beat the three runners up by only one stroke. So he had taken one fewer swing swipe at the white ball during the tournament and he took home over $2 million in prize money. And this was his fifth time winning the tournament. So golf is quite a challenging sport. You know, it's unusual. Unlike other sports like football and basketball, there's no standardized field. You know, every course is different. There are different vegetation, slopes and wind. And the strokes count. So you can take as many strikes as you want at the ball in other sports like basketball, handball and uh, tennis. Whereas in golf, every strike counts. So these golfers like Tiger Woods are incredibly precise about their perception and action. They can observe and they can move with such, such precision. So as a philosopher of perception, my questions, my questions are about, you know, how does Tiger Woods do this? How does he perceive the world? Like what are the processes in his brain, in his body? How is he observing the environment and reacting in such a minute way? How is he achieving this? So we might ask questions about, you know, what's the connection between perception and action, between seeing the world and then moving your physical body in relation to the environment? How is perception constrained by your biology, by your size, your metabolism, the, the eyeballs that you have? How is perception constrained by your vantage point, like where you're standing in the environment, what level you're at, you know, yeah, what, what you're surrounded by? And then the most broad question, which interested me the most in this project is, can we perceive reality itself? So can humans perceive the world as it really is? So when, when Tiger Woods looks at the golf course, is he seeing the, the true metaphysical world or is he just perceiving some constructed model of the world in his brain? So that is the philosophy of perception, some kind of, those are the kind of questions that we would ask about perception, action, the physical body, and your relationship with the environment. Wow. Okay. And now, well, now you got me curious. What did the case of, of Tiger Woods, what did it tell you about the philosophy of perception? Well, I use Tiger Woods more as a question raiser rather than like an answer bringer. Okay. But I think it did lead me towards thinking about, you know, how, how, does, how does his unique biology as a human and as an individual tiger, how does that affect the kind of ways he can see and the ways he can act? So I, I came to some conclusions, which I'll lead you towards maybe later on, that yes, perception is constrained by the body because every species sees the world in a different way. And yet, with the most important question for me, you know, do we all perceive, do we perceive the world as it really is? I think there are several arguments to say that we do, that we do live in this shared world. And even though the world appears differently to Tiger Woods as to a monkey, as to a bee, there are several philosophical reasons why we perceive objective features of the world as they really are. So it's about the, the body constraining what you can see but also being able to see objective properties out there in the world. And this is getting very technical, sorry. Yeah. Maybe we can, well, we can take a step back. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I think I like, I'm, I'm grabbing myself onto Tiger Woods, man. You got, <laughs> that's my lifeline here. Because... Um, hmm? I can use a different example, maybe, which I think... No, might... well, there's one thing I'm... Because, 
you said he he would you would perceive the world differently than than a bee or 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 another animal but i think he also perceives the world differently than i would um at least when he's he's there taking a swing mm -hmm. i think there's so much going through his mind that i'm missing out on in in terms of wind uh, in terms of yeah like aim and i don't know all the skills you get uh you train yourself in in becoming a professional golfer mm -hmm. so in a way that would be a different perception than mine mm -hmm. hey, I'm, and the philosophers i was reading they're called inactivists so e-n-a-c-t-i-v-i-s-t-s -I -I inactivists and they talk a lot about this 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 relationship between perception and action so what's special about tiger woods is that he can both observe the wind and aim, but also he can manipulate his body in response to what he perceives. So there's this constant feedback loop of perceiving and acting. And you, an activist argue that you can't have perception without action, that all of what we do in the world, we look in order to move our body and we move our body in order to, you know, acquire perceptual stimuli. So there's this constant, this constant loop between how we're seeing and how we're acting. And I think Golfers like Tiger Woods are so impressive because they have mastered this, this kind of close relationship between perceiving and acting. They can make these minute changes in the way their their body is positioned to bring about the 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 stimulus of the ball flying down the course and into the hole. It's like a constant constant check of what he's seeing and what he's doing and what he's seeing. That that's the loop you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Okay, but maybe I'll introduce an example with a different species because I think this might help to you know to look at the questions we're really asking here. So if you imagine like a, a bee and a human, so how do they perceive the world and how is it different? And we'll leave tiger aside. Okay, use tiger in this example, but it might be confusing. So mm -hmm, let's okay, take a I'll, new I'll human. <laughs> so this human, let's call her Bethany. So Bethany and a bee are both standing in a meadow. And, you know, it's it's a hot summer day. The sun is beating down. The tangled wildflowers and grasses are covering this lovely meadow, and it's 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 the sun is shining. It's great. I'm already there. <laughs> <laughs> and what does the bee see? Well, the first big difference is the bee can detect ultraviolet light. So the bee can detect wavelengths of light that we can't see. So there's the red end of the spectrum and the blue end of the spectrum, and the bee can detect ultraviolet light, which is further than the blues we can see. And they use these ultraviolet um, stimulus stimuli to uh, to see nectar on flowers and this is how they, they find they're called nectar guides these ultraviolet rays around a flower at the same time these bees can't detect red and orange so their entire spectrum of, visu of visible light is shifted so Bethany the human is looking at the meadow and she's seeing the visible light that we're used to seeing and the bee is looking at the meadow and is seeing a very different array of stimuli and the ultraviolet light from the nectar is, you know, taking center stage. And there's the difference in, you know, what they're what they're able to do. So the the scale of the world is so different for the bee. The flowers are several times the size of its body. And, you know, their their entire world is about these possibilities to pollinate. They just want to find the nectar. They're following the ultraviolet nectar guides. Whereas Bethany at her scale, you know, the the meadow is like eleven steps from side to side. She's looking at an ice cream van that's parked on the street next next to the meadow she's not looking at the flowers she's doing something totally different so this is the argument from philosophers of perception that 
we're all in a different perceptual world, the human and the bee. So how is this the same reality? That's the problem that I was that I was kind of trying to answer in this in this research project. I see. How did you do this? So I used a mixture of empirical papers and philosophical papers. And this is part of the method that I think we should be using in philosophy these days. You know, these questions about perception, they don't have conclusive scientific answers yet. So we do need philosophers to kind of push the boundaries, fill in the gaps. But there is plenty of robust empirical work about perception and brains and from philosophy of neuroscience. So we do need to pay attention to the empirical work that's been done already. So that was my kind of approach. I looked at several papers from neuroscience and psychology about perception. And then I also looked at some philosophy. I tried to bring it all together as part of the, the overall, the synthesis approach. And in the end, one of the most persuasive arguments that I found was from a great uh, professor, Professor Pete Mandick, who's one of my past podcast guests. And he talks about, you know, the, the objective the objective constraints that actually give rise to these differences. So we talk about Bethany and the bee. They see these different worlds. They see different colors. They see different possibilities for action. So there's these subjective differences. But these differences are only made possible because they have brains and bodies, because they exist in this shared reality, which gives rise to the constraints themselves. So there's this objective fact of subjectivity, which I think is a very nice way of putting it. So yes, there are subjective differences in how the bee and Bethany see the world, but it's an objective fact that there are these differences. And it's because of empirically observable things like differences in brains, differences in bodies that give rise to these differences in perception. So I think that that's the defense that I gave of a position called realism in philosophy, that we can defend the idea of a shared world, that we're perceiving objective properties of the shared world, even though sometimes the world appears quite differently. Hope that makes some kind of sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing that I'm especially, I can grasp and that you mentioned is, is your way of doing research, which is, as I recall correctly, using empirical studies mostly and using them as examples to build your case. Mm -hmm. Is that the way you, you use them in your thesis? I would look for evidence of so evidence in human beings, especially, that we could, you know, perceive and extract objective properties of objects. So I looked at some neuroscience and psychology of perception, and especially, you know, how So there was one paper where uh, subjects were shown different shapes of coins, depending on where they were looking at these coins from. And the conclusion from this study, it's too complex to probably explain in detail, but the conclusion was you know, despite having different perspectives, participants were able to extract the objective shape of the coin, even though it appeared like a circle or an ellipse, depending on the, you know, the angle they were viewing the coin from, they still knew it was a circular coin viewed from the side. So they're the kind of, they're not conclusive because philosophy perception is about questions which are not yet empirically conclusive, but I'm looking for clues and hints from empirical studies that might point towards the kind of conclusions that I want to make about philosophy and metaphysics. Right. Do you have conclusiveness now? Or are you certain of your case? Or Well, this is philosophy. And I think this is actually an important point to make that when we're talking about philosophy, we're talking about things that, as I say, aren't completely determined empirically. If they were, they wouldn't be philosophy. And things we, we uh, questions for modern physics used to be questions for Aristotle's natural philosophy 2000 years ago. So there is this trend towards 
when a question becomes conclusive and we're certain and is an empirical answer, it's actually no longer philosophy. It becomes some other empirical domain. And I think this is going to happen with consciousness and all sorts of other pursuits which are now philosophical. With better empirical tools, we might come to conclusive answers and they'll cease to be philosophy. So the exciting part about philosophy for me is that we're working at on this boundary, at this the edge of what we can say conclusively. And yes, there, it will never be conclusive and it shouldn't be or else it won't be philosophy. And it's all about the strength of the case you make. And yes, as you say, you're, you're, you're pulling on very small nuggets of empirical kind of research and studies. So I say it's all about extrapolation, how we extrapolate from the data to where we want to go. And that's it's all about the strength of your argument, how you think about the objections, the responses, the possible other ways to interpret the data. And you have to kind of block off those interpretations and argue for your own interpretation. And it's not going to be conclusive, but good philosophy is about making a robust, well-reasoned case for why your interpretation, your extrapolation of what the empirical results might indicate is the strongest one. And that's the exciting part. <laughs> I see. Yeah, that makes sense. I also liked your example of things that that were philosophy, but that are now parts of of a more empirical science of things that we've solved in a way. Mm -hmm. That's exciting that you're like able to start off a research or, or build a case for a certain view on the world and hand it over to another domain of science but you were the initiator that that's nice to be part of that progression in a way which we try to get to in science i guess yeah and that's the thing that excites me that i think that a lot of these questions that i'm talking about now will be subject to empirical testing in the future and the testing might say my theory was totally wrong so like you're you're open to you know to verification or to you know, disconfirmation. So both options are, are possible. But I should say one thing to be careful. Philosophers of science are careful of talking about progress. So progress is tricky. You know, we, we're not on this, you know, straight track from not knowing to knowing. We're kind of on this wonky, better tools, improving our methods. So I, I do fall into the trap of thinking that we're on this track towards understanding things better. And I think we are on this track. Our tools are improving. We're going to have better tools to study consciousness in the future. So yes, but I think philosophers of science also object to this, you know, uh, it's an evolutionist view of knowledge that we're on a straight track from ignorance to total empirical knowledge of the world. Uh -huh. So I think that's also a, a caveat to avoid. But, but I agree, it's, it's exciting. These are exciting topics. And it, we're, we're at the boundary of what we can know about the world. And that's, that's why it's fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, thanks. The word progression was a bit too optimistic, maybe. Well, I say I say these things myself and I have to check myself for oh, my, yeah. our biases. Yeah. <laughs> um oh you also already touched upon it uh a bit already, but what what motivated you during your thesis? Also because there will be uncertainty in it, because that's that's the nature of philosophy as well. I can uh imagine that it, maybe at some point that could wear down on you like man what can we say if there's only uncertainty or, or what 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 kind of things that you kept you running kept you motivated for your research yeah it's interesting to think about because i think some people might think this is totally futile just go home and in 50 years the scientists will figure it out your task in the meantime is just completely superfluous why the hell are you bothering but uh on the contrary i think 
lots of exciting stuff can be done at this level. You know, working with these questions that are, yeah, that we don't quite know about. And I think I've always been interested in very deep and abstract metaphysical questions about the way the world really is. So I was studying perception, but I was really trying to answer questions about our perception of the world, our perception of reality. Can we access some kind of true sense of what the world is like? How much are we trapped or misled or constrained or ignorant because of biases and biology and other kind of patterns of thought? So I think I've always really had this this motivation to find out about the way the world really is. And that really kind of just, that never went away, I think. Uh, sometimes you lose lose track of why you're reading one text and then you just, again, reorientate yourself with the big picture, how this fits in, why it's important with a global view, because I like the global right. view. <laughs> why, uh, in what way can it uh, add on to your view of how the world works? Mm -hmm. In what way does it, does it add a piece to the puzzle? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was basically also your strategy when you were lost in a way or... or you yeah you lost the overview as you said you would go back and check how how what am i reading about and how does it fit in my in my goal my aim exactly and this i think is a great exercise in any subject to ask this biggest picture what's the point question so if you're studying history or geology or politics and you get lost in some argument in the bottom of some paper and it's like a thursday evening and you just want to have dinner you can always ask this, what's the point question? Because there's always this bigger picture wave it, it fitting into so a sociological, I don't know, bias or understanding, or there's always some reason why you're interested in the topic and you can remind yourself how it fits into the puzzle, the kind of the overall puzzle that you're trying to complete at the end of the year, at the end of the five years, whenever it is. I'm also still curious, how did you deal with the individual part of, of doing a thesis? Yeah, so I actually quite liked the individual part. It was quite quite liberating to kind of do what you felt like doing most of the time. It was, and I think I've worked in previous jobs as part of a team, and I will be working soon in a new job as part of a team. But it was quite a nice experience to be solo. And you really are solo. I mean, your supervisor is more of like an agony ant that you come to every two weeks for teething problems. It's your own project, and you do what you feel like doing, what you feel like is important to read and to write about. So that was quite nice. And I mean, as philosophy, as a as a topic itself, the lifestyle is quite amenable to working from home. Everything is online. Well, 90% of what I needed was online. So, I mean, compared to my friends, my, my housemate is doing her PhD in rectal colon cancer research in at the UU campus. Ah. So she lives at the lab. She has to be there 50 hours a week. She's there Monday to Friday, you know, 10 hours a day. She has to run experiments, tend to her cells, as she says. And then I have other friends studying history of science and they had to go to the library and look at these books that were hundreds of, years, hundreds of years old. And they couldn't check these books out. They had to be there in person, put on special gloves to read them. So in contrast to all of that, you know, philosophy is quite nice in that you can you can go anywhere, work from anywhere. I worked from Ireland and from Utrecht and from France, you know, over the course of my project. And you can be cozy at home in your philosophy cave, as, as I call my, my philosophy cave. So that was quite nice. Uh, but at the same time, so I, I sound like an introvert that way, but really I'm not because we we found ways to hang out. I think as philosophy students, you you find ways to socialize. 
because you know your work is solo, but you you want to see people. So we started going to the, to a cafe on Thursdays to work on our thesis projects together, and then we started going to those houses to you know work from home and then make dinner in the evening. So those were those were very fun days, and discussing your projects with people really helps. Explaining your ideas for the first time or answering questions from someone who hasn't heard about it for the first time that's actually really useful. So it's this crazy mixture of solo time, being liberated to to have your solo time, and then also meeting people who you want to meet. It's also quite quite a privilege to just hang out with your your friends and people you've chosen to to work with and discuss your ideas with them. And that was the year. It was pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, I see. So it's also a matter of finding your own balance in that. How much time do you want to spend with people and mm -hmm. talk about your research? How much time are you, do you need to to be on your own to read on it uh, to read into it and to think about it yeah mm -hmm. and some of my friends are like crazy extroverts so they would spend 12 hours a day at the library every day of the week and they make new friends at the coffee machine and they you know they could have been at home but they chose to be you know out and about in cafes or in the library so you know it's totally up to you in philosophy quite nicely with your project that you can you can be wherever you want to be doing it so you can be in any country in any place And uh, that's quite nice. It's, yeah, it's, it's freedom. Right. Yeah, finding your way in it, finding what suits you. And you just mentioned it already a bit, but you you have plans, you have work. Well, actually, have two projects that I I should mention. I'm writing a book and I'm starting a new job. So I'll I'll tell you about the book first, and this is more closely related to what I've been doing recently. So I'm writing a pop philosophy book. It's like a, it's an intro to philosophy for people who are new to the area. And this is, I mean, I've got a podcast, so I've already been interested in popularizing writing for a general audience uh, for a long time. I wanted to write this book for, for quite a while. And I really think that philosophy is very useful and valuable. And my specific take is that philosophical tools are very useful. So lots of these intro to philosophy books are, they jump straight into the problems. So they jump into identity and God and time, but they don't really talk explicitly about the tools that philosophers use to answer these questions. So my this book is going to be about philosophical tools and I want to call it something like how to evaluate problems like a philosopher so I think there's lots of value for philosophical tools in the 21st century and I've been writing recently I'm about halfway through the first draft and yeah trying to trying to bring these ideas to a, a general audience who mightn't have heard of these before cool what kind of problems are you talking about in that sense well I'm trying to make it as applicable as possible to everyday life, which is, that's the really challenging part. So I usually introduce the the tools by talking about a philosophical problem because that's what they were designed to do, whether it's like extrapolating from data like I did in my own thesis to answer some philosophical question at the boundary of knowledge, or I talk about getting meta, looking at methods and procedures uh, in, in other domains. And you can do this, it's called it's kind of like a philosophy of X. So when you get meta, you you do philosophy of that thing, philosophy of science, but it could be philosophy of religion, philosophy of film, philosophy of running a household. So I, I try to talk about the ways you can be a philosopher in other areas of life. And it's it's definitely the most challenging thing is to find all these examples of ways that are applicable to life. But yeah, I'm uh, it's going well. I'm, I'm, I'm finding some applications. <laughs> I'm really curious to to your book. Uh, this was one of your plans, right? Writing the book. Mm -hmm. What's your other plan? So I'm starting a new job in January at a as a strategy consultant in Dublin. So you know, might be thinking this is very different to philosophy, and in a way, it is quite different because it'll be you know strategy consulting about 
general business problems mainly. But I think, you know, going back to the, the philosopher's tools, I hope to find that the philosopher's tools are going to be useful for tackling these problems. And there'll be, you know, a, a related set of consultants tools. So I'm hoping to find an overlap between two sets of tools. And yeah, but I think that it will be extremely helpful to to think like a philosopher, to bring this new perspective on these business problems, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. It's a pleasure to be able to have you here. Now you're still here. I have this talk about, about what you did, about your plans. About, we talked about it a lot. So thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. It was great. We've come to the end of this podcast. Thank you for listening. If you're interested, there's a small teaser of Jeff's podcast about philosophy. So I might just mention that I have a podcast called Extrapolator. And it's really about all these topics that I've been talking about in this conversation, things at the intersection of philosophy and science. I interview guests, you know, philosophers, scientists, public intellectuals about all the exciting work they're doing at the, the boundary of knowledge, as I say. So if you, if you like the sound of that, you can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the places you find your podcasts.